captured by and as a slave to fear. I pray, Lord, that you would free us from it so we learn how to live by faith and we learn how to live with you in sight, understanding who you are and what you have done for your children and what you will do and what you're going to do. I pray, Lord, that we would live in that way and not in any way be captured and kept by fear. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there's a lot, all kinds of fears that people have. People have fear of darkness. They have acrophobia, which is fear of heights. They have fear of failure. Some people have aviophobia, which is fear of flying. Some people have dentophobia, which is fear of dentists. I think I have that, you know. You know, so fears, the list, matter of fact, as I was looking at some fears, there are 15 pages of single space of all kinds of fears that people have in, um, in life, and I'm sure that there could be another 15 pages. But some people have, and may, maybe uh, you have this, others have had fear of um, politicophobia, which is an abnormal dislike of politicians. Uh, bibliophobia, which is a fear of books. Uh, there's ergophobia, which is a fear of work. Nostophobia, which is a fear of knowledge. And of course, there is also phobias. Uh, Ablutophobia is the fear of bathing. Some children have that, right? And of course, uh, there's a fear of also sinning, which is a good fear to have. Fear is actually healthy, too. It's, it, does, it has a positive and a negative effect. There's the fear of, uh, of course, the greatest fear that we can have is the fear of God, a proper fear, because the fear of God brings us to a proper knowledge of ourselves, of what God has done and what God wants us to do. And I have, I'm coining a new one today, uh, COVID-phobia-19, the fear of catching the coronavirus and any virus uh, in for that matter. So what has fear caused us to do? Fear has shut down a nation and its economy for three months plus. It has sequestered people inside their homes for three months plus. It caused us to wear masks like we have today, use hand sanitizers, hand sanitizers install hand-free door openers, build plexi glass COVID walls to prevent human aerosol from spreading too far, and of course, social distancing. Now, has our fears, has these fears gone to great lengths? Can these great lengths be justified? Well, some will say yes. Some will say no. Maybe the medical profession will say yes. And then, of course, the ones who say no are the economists. Let's get back to work. Let's get back into business. But fear is a good thing. But it can be taken too far. It can be taken too far for many different reasons. I believe I can say with much proof supporting me that human beings are creatures that can be diagnosed with polyphobia or polyphobia. The fear of many things. One of the most famous quotes on fear was given by Franklin Delaware Roosevelt in his inaugural address on April 4th, 
1933, when we were plunged into the Second World War, he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. So he was saying there to take the fear that we all would have in going to war, not knowing what's going to take place, and take that and not run from it, but advance towards it and defeat it. So the underlying theme in this passage is fear. And we all know that fear can have a real crippling effect in our lives. David helps by giving us insight on how to deal with fear. David could have become a slave to fear, but he did not cave in under its debilitating power. Now, why didn't he? Well, the scripture before us gives us very important pointers on how to look at life. It is possible to look at life in two different ways. First, as it appears in and of itself, just what we can see with our eyes. And then secondly, as it, is, as it appears through the eyes of faith. But faith must have an object. And the object of David's faith is the presence of God and the goodness of God. Matter of fact, David was more afraid that he would lose the sense of God's presence while occupying space in the land of the living than he was about anything else. And we should feel the same way. See, uh, David was a mighty warrior, but he was also a realist. He doesn't paint a rose-colored picture of life but he paints a picture of life filled with situations that have the potential to create great fear. Now let's look at some of the potential fears that David had to overcome because they really mimic many of the same fears that could be manifest in our own lives. So let's learn from him. So today we're going to look at really the fears that David has the faith that he has, and then all the triumph that comes in the end when, we're pro- when we properly deal with our fears. So the first thing is the fears. Let's look at it. Verse number two, it says this, When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries, my enemies. Now, I just want to take part of the verse because I'm going to go, I'm going to go back and look at the rest of it as we go along. But the first thing is that the land of the living is a place of vulnerability and weakness. Here is an image of a pack of wild beasts coming with one intention in mind, to hunt for prey, to kill, to eat. So the forces of evil come to threaten his very life. And David, the mighty warrior, felt vulnerable and felt weak. The feeling of being pursued by a pack of hungry dogs David had many times, really, when people such as these were pursuing him to take his life. We read through First and Second Samuel. We read through First and Second Kings. We see that this takes place. We read through the Psalms. We see what's going on. For example, 
Second or First Samuel chapter 23, verse 26, it says that Saul, remember Saul would dog David, Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize him. But at that Right at that point, a messenger came and came to Saul saying, Hurry, come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore, David called that place the Rock of Escape. Now, David didn't escape, but God made a way of escape as he trusted in him. So David went from there and, of course, stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. And then when he got to En Gedi, what does it say in 1 Samuel 24, verse 1 and 2? When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, what did he do? He got 3,000 chosen warriors to seek out David in front, in front of the, the rock of the wild goats. So David constantly feeling this, this pressure of being pursued by an enemy bigger and greater than him. So what would he do? Even though he was a mighty warrior, knew how to use his weapons, knew how to use everything uh, that God had given him, but he lived in the land of the living, and in the land of the living, there's vulnerabilities and weaknesses no matter how strong you are. Secondly, in verse number 3 of Psalm 27, in the land of the living is a place of, also is a place of unavoidable sinful Aggression. Notice in verse number 3 it says, Though a host encamped against me, my heart will not fear the war arise against me. All right? I, I, again, what is going on here? That now a whole army comes against him. So the sense that within the fabric of human society, something has gone all wrong. People are not living in unity. They are living in constant fear and being afraid. If you're honest with the facts, you must admit war is raging in every man's heart. It always has been. Since man's rebellion against God in his fall into sin, society and all societies are poisoned with a malady of war in the heart. And even though society tries to correct the malady of man's aggression by reform and teaching, war still rages over the whole planet. Maybe it's really clear this week in the news where you have a group of Anarchists taking over a whole section of a city, and no one's doing anything about it. See, it, it, something's gone wrong. It, it's right before our eyes. But wasn't, and hasn't James, in the epistle of James, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he told us already, he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? That's a question. Is not the source your pleasure that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, 
you commit murder, you are envious and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. In other words, that is, you don't depend on God. It's not just asking prayer. It's depending on God in your life and not going with the dictates of your own sinful heart because war is in our heart. Thirdly, in Psalm 27, verse number 5, the land of the living is also a place of mysterious dark trouble. Notice what it says in verse 5, the beginning of the verse. For in the day of trouble, in the day of trouble, isn't there enough trouble in life sufficient to keep us overburdened with worry and fear? It's the Gospel of Matthew that says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't you find that? You wake up, it's a beautiful day, you walk out the door, you're going to work, you're going wherever you have to do, and all of a sudden you are presented with a problem, a trouble you never expected, right? Sometimes you don't know what to do. It could be a family problem. It could be a work problem. It could be a societal problem. It could be a health problem. There's many, many problems that would happen, and if we're living in the realm of that, we're going to be worrying all the time. The righteous man Job was very familiar with trouble in the land of the living. And he wrote this in Job chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout up from the ground. This is what he says. For man is born for trouble as the sparks fly up. Wherever we go, trouble will be there in some form or another because we live in a sinful world with sinful people, and we're sinners ourselves. And then also in verse 10 of Psalm 27, the land of the living is also a place of disappointment. He says this, For my father and my mother have forsaken me. Now, there's no evidence that David's father and mother forsook him. So most likely what it's saying here is that he lost his father and mother to death, right? That's how, isn't death the, the greatest leveler in our lifetime? Isn't it the most confusing thing that you could ever try to think about and wrap your mind around? We know why people die because of sin, but still we know it doesn't belong here. It's an enemy in the land of the living. It shouldn't be here. If this is the land of the living, why is death here? Well, maybe this is the, the one of the worst things is that when you're forsaken by the people closest to you and they, they get taken off in death, especially father and mother, that, you know, were there for your stability, were there for were you learned from, were there for your support in, in many ways. And so this is a disappointment. Death is a disappointment. There's nowhere to hang it. There's nowhere to put it. But in the land of the living, we're going to be disappointed because death is here. And then one of the last things he mentions in verse 13 is the land of the living is a place of despair. Now, it says this in the, the New American Standard Bible. I don't think it has it in the ESV. I don't know why, but uh, I do know why, actually. It says, I, if, I would have despaired unless... 
I would have despaired. See, the land of the living is a place of despair. It's a place where you faint. uh, And fear will definitely lock us into despair. Why are there so many people depressed today and taking antidepressants and all these drugs that help in that way? It's because they're in despair. They can't figure out life. Life has, has beat them down and crushed them. They have many fears, and they don't know what to do with it, right? Now, that should be different for believers because now David comes to the place where now he tells them, okay, I, I, just, I just showed you in there the fears that we have and the fears that he had, but now here's faith. See, faith sees behind and around corners. Your eyes can't see behind corners, but faith can because we trust in a God who is living and alive and involved in our lives. And so David now talks about his faith. So he chose to look at life through the eyes of faith and to deliberately live his life by faith. The object of his faith really shows us how he was able to triumph over fear. So if we want to triumph over fear, whatever form fear takes, we must take to heart David's example of dealing with fear because fear unchecked will cause us to dread life. He became fearless when his confidence was in the Lord. So all fears of life could cause us to lose heart and to faint. The eyes of faith sees what faithlessness cannot see. It sees the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. See, faith is a shield against fear. Here in this passage, he actually brings up three. The first one in verse 1 through 3, he has confidence in the Lord. Confidence in the Lord. It it says, I'll, I'll just mention that in a minute, but Confidence in the Lord kept him from being a slave to any fear and all fears. He held a kind of a threefold shield of faith to deflect the, the missiles that, of fear that would attack him. Now, this is very similar to what the New Testament refers to as the shield of faith. The shield of faith, which is that piece of armor the soldier takes up and stands up against all the wild of the devil, where it says in Ephesians 6, 16, in addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So the devil is really trying to shake you and catch you off guard so that every now and then these attacks are in the form of insults and setbacks and difficulties and discord and fiery temptations, and in the form of fear, too. Faith always points to the character of God, that he is truthful, that he is unchanging, that he is all-powerful, that he is ever-present, the God who is able and willing to work in behalf of his children. He loves his children and is for them and very interested in them. So this is what the shield of faith looks like for David, very similar to the New Testament. And he actually mentions his confidence in three different ways. In verse number one, 
actually all coming from verse 1. He says, first of all, that the Lord is my light. Notice what it says. The Lord is my light. So who was his eyes upon in the place of mysterious dark trouble? It was upon the Lord. And you notice here, it doesn't say that the Lord gives his light. It says the Lord is light. So the light that David receives is a light that comes from God and illuminates everything around him. But notice what he says also, the Lord is my light, whom shall I fear? If God is the one illuminating things, if, if the Lord is the one who is there in time of my trouble, in time of mysterious darkness, who should I fear? The answer, of course, to that is no one. There's no one to fear. If God is the greater one, greater than all other things, there is nothing to fear. And then notice in verse number 5, for in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place his in the secret place his tent, he will hide me, he will lift me up on the rock. So here there is a German proverb that says fear makes the wolf bigger than he is. Well, when God is our confidence, God will place us out of the reach of our enemies and make us appear bigger than all our fearful enemies. In other words, God sends the wolf running away in fear of us. The other way around, why? Because God is our light. A second thing he says also is God is my salvation. So whose eyes, who was his eyes upon in the place of unavoidable sinful aggression? Well, the God of salvation. Notice again in verse number one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? See, Psalm 27.3, though a host encamp me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. That word confident there means to cause to trust or to actually even to trust with a sense of safety. The word confidence in our English language comes from the Latin, con, with, and fideus, faith, means really a self-confidence. Self-confidence is really faith in ourselves. Now, that can carry us a long way, faith in ourselves, but eventually it, it runs into something that is bigger than us. But when you put your confidence in God, there is nothing that can come against you that can be bigger, stronger, or more reliable than he. Remember, the Israelite army, army confidently took on the Philistines until they brought out their hero, Goliath. You know that story. Who was over nine foot tall, who was trained as a soldier from his youth, at that point, their confidence dissolved. They were cringing in their trenches. And when this little teenager come, came around named David, he shows up. He couldn't understand why they were afraid of Goliath. They said because he's so big, because he's so ferocious, 
David must have said, if he's so big, I can't possibly miss him. So David didn't come at Goliath because he was confident in himself. Actually, it says in 1 Samuel 17, 45, this is what he says. I come to you in the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. I come to you in his name. And David takes his stone out and flings it at the giant. It lands in the center of his head, and he falls down dead, and then he cuts his head off. See, that's what happens when you trust God. But when you're afraid, you're like the Israel, Israelite army. They, they, they recoil, and they don't want to fight because they think they're going to lose. So he says to us here, listen, I, the eyes of faith realizes that the Lord is my light, that the Lord is my salvation. And then notice back in Psalm 27, verse 1, that the Lord is my protection. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? No one, no thing. So who was his eyes upon in the place of vulnerability and weakness and disappointment and despair? It was upon the Lord who is his defense. He didn't have to dread life. The Lord was the intangible barrier against the pursuer. Even when, even when the condition of, of life uh, may be friendless or uh, be helpless as a child uh, deserted by his parents in death, and there is, there is one who watches over us and takes us to his protecting side, and that is the great God and Savior that we have. Psalm 27, verse 2, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries, and my enemies, look what it says, they stumbled and fell. God caused their feet to slip out from underneath them, and they fell down. When David came against armies that were greater and mightier than he, God was his defense. He was his warrior. So believers, remember this, we have a new Protection also. For the believer, safety is no longer an issue for, for those who know Christ. 1 John 5.18, but he who is born of God, born of God, keeps him. God keeps us. Surely it is the responsibility of Christians to keep themselves free from sin and to repent of their sin and put it to death. The idea, though, is that Jesus keeps us. You do not keep yourself in the sense that your confidence does not lie in your ability to keep yourself saved or from the power of sin or from the harm Satan wants to inflict upon you. The source of your spiritual birth is God alone. It is God who has a hold on you. The responsibility to keep us safe and secure solely rests on Jesus Christ. Jesus keeps us safe, safe all those whom God the Father has given him, told to us in John 17. And Jesus prays to the Father to keep his disciples safe by protecting them from the devil, where he says in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, 
but that you keep them from the evil one. See, it is the Lord has, has taken care of things for us that as we live by faith, we come to realize that. When Satan wants to inflict harm upon you, for example, when he wants to lead you into false teaching so that you are led astray from the truth because the evil one wants to rob you of your joy and lead you into doubt and cause you to lose your assurance and this truth, this truth that God keeps you will make you confident to stand in the keeping power of the Lord, to put the whole armor of God on that you don't fall, but you stand. And of course, the armor of God is putting on Christ. Once you are his, he keeps you from falling completely away. You may fall at times. You may stumble at times, but you get up, right? You get back into the word. You get back into growing in Christ-likeness. So our spiritual enemy can certainly overcome us. He's stronger than us, but he cannot because Christ keeps us. So confidence in the Lord as to who the Lord is in his character and in his, in, in his dealings with his children in the land of the living is a shield against fear. A second thing is pleasure in the Lord. And I believe that this leads into it naturally, that if I have confidence in the Lord and I trust in the Lord, then I'm also, I also want a relationship with the Lord. I want to have pleasure in the Lord, right? So in other words, here in Scripture, the Bible is giving us a single-mindedness, the single-mindedness of David when his eyes are upon the Lord. So secondly, he has pleasure in the Lord. Pleasure is seen in, in David's, one single-minded desire to seek the one goal in his life, his goal was not necessarily to defeat his enemies all the time. See, God becomes the supreme thing in his life. The one object of his desire, which should be our desire and our ambition, our ambition. It is in this focus that triumph over life is experienced. Triumph over fear is experienced. Now, what am I talking about? Look at verse number four. It says, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I seek. One goal in life. Can we minimize our life down to one goal? If David can, we can. And that's the whole point. The, the point is, is that we need to get to the place where we are looking at the Lord in a way where that is our desire. The term seek is really a word that means to seek to find, not just to seek to wander and never find anything, but here to seek the face and the presence of God. It may be translated, I will utterly seek the face of God. It is saying, this is my utmost golden life, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So he's talking about living in the land of the living, and while he's living there, that he would dwell in the house of God. He would be where God is. And why this utmost goal? Well, he gives two reasons. In verse 4, he says, to behold the beauty of the Lord. That's the loveliness of the Lord. And then also, secondly, to think, to meditate in his temple or to inquire is what it means there. And so he wants 
as he has confidence in the Lord, now to have pleasure in the Lord. The Lord is my goal. And if the Lord is my defense, and if he's my confidence, I want to walk with him. I want to be where he is at. I want to know more about who he is. I want to see the loveliness of the Lord in the land of the living where things get ugly and they get confusing to keep my eyes there. So in other words, pleasure in the Lord, to see the Lord's beauty and the mind to dwell on his presence is a shield against fear. And that leads to the next thing he brings up in verse number 7 and 10, dependence on the Lord. So David now gives the prayer of desperation. Look what he says in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O my God, uh, God, O God of my salvation. For my mother and father have forsaken me. The Lord will take me up. See, again, it's all the focus of the Lord. And how does it, what does he do? He brings it to the place where he is seeking God, but not simply seeking God. He wants to know God. He wants the presence of God. He wants God to hear hear him in prayer, and he wants to hear the voice of God in prayer. That's what he wants the most out of anything while he's being pursued by his enemies, while he's hiding in caves, while he's on the run. He is seeking the Lord. So this is not this is not a really a comfortable situation that we see in Scripture. This is not everything's going fine, well, and dandy. This is things are out of control in life, and yet is he's steadfast, he's focused, he has confidence, he know who he knows who the Lord is, and he's seeking him in prayer. It was the man Job, from a totally different and early time in human history, concluded the same thing about the solution of fear. He says this in Job five. Verse 8 through 12, listen to what he says. He says, but as for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God. And then listen to what he says. He says, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number? He gives rain on the earth and sends water in the fields. So he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. See, he's seeking the face of God. He wants to know more of who he is, but he's also committed to the ways of God, the will of God. In verse number 11 and 12 of Psalm 27, this is what he says. Teach me your way. He's teachable. O Lord, lead me in the level path because of my foes. Teach me how to do warfare with you as my commanding officer. And it's then in verse 12, do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. And what does he mean specifically? For false witnesses have risen against me, such as breathe out violence. People who lie and manipulate, maybe that's the hardest thing to fight against. How do you fight against 
somebody who lies about who you are, what you've done. It's very hard to fight against that. But he knows in this case, too, that God is the answer. So we see here that confidence in the Lord leads to pleasure in the Lord, leads to dependence on the Lord. Prayer is about depending on God about everything that's going on. So dependence on the Lord in prayer and in a teachable spirit. And the ways of the Lord is a shield against fear. And of course, that leads to the conclusion of the whole psalm. This is the triumph. He went from the, he went from the, uh, the very fears of the man to the faith of the man, now to the triumph of the man. David's unflinching confidence. So here is the result. Here is the conclusion of confidence and pleasure and dependence on the Lord. In verse number 13, I would have despaired. Why? Unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. See, that's his conclusion. I would have given up. I would have checked out. I would have fallen on my face if I didn't see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's the same for us today. You and I, every day we're confronted with problems, with issues, with with difficulties. We're, We're confronted with those things in our family, in our society, in our nation. They're multitude. They're always there. There's fears for every situation. And yet, we also have the truth of who God is, that God is not against us. He's for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? No one. It's it's the same kind of thing. And so David is saying, listen, I lived my life in the middle of battle most of my life. And yet, in every situation, I saw God's goodness. I saw God's hand. I saw answer to prayer. I saw who he is and how he protects me. I saw that it goes beyond the land of the living to the very presence of God, to where he dwells in his tabernacle, to where he is in uh, his eternality. And it's the same for us. We're, we're passing through pilgrims in a foreign land. We're heading home. See, so that gives us confidence. Death is not the last thing for a believer. Death is where we go into the presence of God. So that gives us hope. We have the word of God. It tells us the mind of God, more so than David had. So we should be confident in the Lord. We should be find pleasure in the Lord. We should have dependence on the Lord and everything. And then in every situation, know the goodness of the Lord, even in the midst of difficulty. We see God's goodness. We see who he is. We see what he has done. And so what does David conclude? If that's the case... Then look what he says in verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And waiting for, for the Lord doesn't mean you do anything. It doesn't, it, it doesn't mean you, do, you don't do anything. Waiting from the Lord is that you're growing. You're, you're growing in knowledge and wisdom. You're growing in dependence. You're growing in, in, in the pleasure of the Lord. You're growing in confidence in the Lord. It's not just a stagnant time. It's a growing time. So if we look at life from a worldly, fleshly perspective, we will always be in despair. 
But if we look at life through the eyes of faith, having our eyes fixed on our confidence in the Lord and who he is in his character, we will not be in despair. We will not stay long in despair if we happen to be there for a while. We'll get out of it because the Lord's going to lift us up. He's going to be our strength. He's going to be our refuge. He's going to be the one who rescues us and gives us salvation. He is the one who's going to give light that illuminates our situation to give us the proper knowledge on what to do. That's what he's going to do. And I have found in my life that's exactly what he does. If you live for the Lord, that's exactly what he does. He will never forsake you or leave you, he said. I will always be with you. Even to the end of the world, right? The Lord's going to be with us. See, that's where we have to live. We can't live anywhere else but there. Life, the nation is going to go crazy. People are going to riot. They're going to be lawless. Lawless, the mystery of lawlessness is, is working already behind the scenes. Satan's pulling a lot of strings today. We can see this world and this society tottering, uh, becoming unstable. Um, authority is uh, looked at in, with disdain. People don't have structure. There's ignorance and foolishness at the highest levels of government. We can't put our confidence there. We cannot. We can't even put our confidence in great armies. And the United States has a great one. We have to put our confidence in the Lord. Because the Lord's taking care of all of it. You have heard believers say, we're worried about what's happening in the world. If things don't change our country, in our country real fast, we're finished. Now, that may be true. Christians shouldn't live that way, though. We don't live by the news of the day. We live by faith in God. It was a man named Bulstro Whitlock who was preparing to embark as Oliver Cromwell's envoy to Sweden in 1653. He was feeling anxious about the tumultuous state of his own nation. He thought, how am I going to represent my nation who just came out of civil war for the first time and also executed its own king, Charles I, the first time ever they did that. The army and the government were at odds with each other. It was difficult enough he said, figuring out which direction the country was headed, let alone representing our country to another country. So the night before his journey, Whitlock nervously paced about. A trusted servant noticed his employer was unable to sleep and approached him after a while, and he exchanged, this exchange took place. He said, sir, will you give me leave to ask you a question? He said, certainly. Do you think that God governed the world very well before you came into it? Oh, absolutely, he said. Sir, do you think that he will govern it quite well when you are gone from it? Certainly, he said. Then, sir, I pray, excuse me, but do you, do not you think, that's what he says, you may trust him to govern it quite well as long as you are living in it? And the question had left Whitlock speechless. 
because he was so bound up in worry and fear that he wasn't even thinking right. He headed to bed and soon was fast asleep. Likewise, I think we would do well to ask ourselves those same questions when fearing what will befall us in today's world. Then rest easy when realizing the obvious answer that God is in control of all things, that he will not leave us or forsake us. So we Christians need a Christ confidence, which is God confidence. That is what we need. And if you just have self-confidence, you are going to run out. You're going to run out and you're going to run into something somewhere that is too big for you, in which case you're going to fail, you are going to be discouraged, and you are going to fall into despair. But confidence in Christ is a win-win situation. We need to trust him for all things and know that he has promised that he will meet our needs and that he will hear our prayers when we call upon him. So let's practice taking up the shield of faith that will stand against any fear that we could have on this side of eternity. That was David's word to us this morning from the word of God. Let's pray.